Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This week's episode is one of those that just sort of wrote itself, to the point that I just couldn't ignore it anymore. This week, three separate things happened. Initially, I saw no connection between them, but as the week went on, I suddenly saw the connection and the overlap between the three events. Together, they hit at the heart of something that we rarely talk about. So let me walk you through these three things, and we'll talk about the overlap. first thing that happened was a Facebook post from Eric Russell. I'm sure you remember him from the episodes you've heard on this podcast. If you haven't heard them, I'd recommend you hunt them down and listen to them. Eric posted, and I quote, a chiropractic adjusting question. As a Palmer alumnus, I was taught by some of the best chiropractic adjusting technique instructors in the profession, personal opinion. As students, we were taught to hold our adjusting thrusts non-toggle. However, I'm seeing more and more chiropractors on social media recoiling their non-toggle adjusting thrusts. I know for some that this is purely for show, but I've also witnessed it when watching someone adjust when there are no cameras or audience present. Where did this phenomenon come from? Is it from Cleveland's full-spine Merrick toggle? I would love to hear your collegial thoughts. Thank you in advance. P.S. I will save giving an adjusting thrust with your stabilization hand for another day. End quote. I found the responses to his question very interesting, but chose not to give my own response as I simply didn't have time or the desire to type that much. Nonetheless, let me briefly tell you what immediately came to my mind. I thought that he had actually hit on a deeper topic, and perhaps I'll have him on the podcast again to talk about it, but I do believe that as an instructor, I got to peek through a window that few in the profession get to see through. I once had a student challenge me on the legitimacy of chiropractors taking x-rays. I had a student challenge me on the best most biomechanically correct way to perform a cervical adjustment. In both cases, I wondered, what gives someone so much confidence that they're completely convinced that their view is the only correct view when they have exactly zero days and no experience seeing any actual patients? I realized in both cases, it was because someone off campus came on campus and told them their opinion, and the student placed more value on their opinion because they saw them as more of a real doctor than any of their instructors. Now this isn't the case at every school, but at LifeU, we had three Gonstead diplomates on campus and all three were GCSS board members at the time. But it wasn't just Gonstead. In every technique system, the instructors weren't just people with a casual interest, but they were known throughout that system as being one of the best. LifeU would tell students that it doesn't matter what technique you choose, you will learn it from the best. You now compare that to one, unfortunately popular system, where the leader, who only has a few years of practice experience, has decided that he's the best chiropractor on the planet and tells all of his attendees that their instructors don't know anything about technique. Personally, I was more amused than offended, but then I began to wonder, what causes students to overestimate talent in one person and severely underestimate it in another? And then I wondered, is it possible for a person with no talent to recognize true talent in another? Are patients any better or worse at recognizing talent than students are? I'm just going to leave that question hanging for a moment, and we'll return to it in just a bit. The second thing that happened, purely by coincidence, is that I began to reread the book The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. If you haven't read the book, it's an enjoyable and entertaining read. 
The central premise of the book is that what we call talent, or might be better labeled as skill, is the product of myelination. In other words, more skill is evidence of more myelin. Or the way to create more skill is to create more myelin. And more myelin is created by more repetition. An interesting fact is that monkeys have the same neurons we do, but we can talk and they cannot. In fact, you can use sign language to teach a monkey to communicate at about a three-year-old level, but that's the limit. The explanation for why is based in the fact that even though we have the same neurons, ours contain more myelin. This additional myelin gives us skill and coordination that allows for speech. So then, if you want to develop skill, you have to do what you aren't good at, while you aren't good at it, long enough to get good at it. Most people don't like to do what they aren't good at, so they quickly become bored or frustrated, and then they just quit. Think of the baby learning to walk. Research has discovered that the babies most willing to quit take the longest to learn to walk, and the ones that are unfazed by their failure and determined to get back up again are the ones that learn the quickest. I've always thought it funny that parents assume if their child is walking early, that means they must be smart. But this ability is not even remotely linked to intelligence. It's far more likely it's a sign that they have a strong-willed child. Good luck! We then conclude that the best adjusters will be those who are least discouraged by their failure, as long as that translates into more practice, more repetitions, and more failure. Believe it or not, failure is an important part of the equation. Practice that does not lead to failure does not produce an increase in myelin. It's only when we work at the limit of our ability that we occasionally taste failure that we're doing the kind of practice that results in increased myelination and the production of skill. Now you might think that some people are born with talent, as in, they were born with increased myelin. This might be true to the extent that they would have a slight advantage initially, but certainly not enough to keep up with someone who is practicing regularly. I think of Kobe Bryant telling stories of his first summer basketball league, where over the course of an entire summer, he scored exactly zero points. He then began to practice with free throws. He figured that if he could at least make the easy ones, he'd be off to a good start. Ultimately, he developed a daily routine that would guarantee that he was practicing as much as he could in a single day, and far more than any of his competitors. The same kid that scored zero points for an entire summer eventually became the man who scored 81 points in a single game. It wasn't because he was more gifted or that he inherited anything. He just practiced so much in the right ways that he piled myelin on top of myelin. Now, to connect this to the first part, do you think Kobe Bryant had the ability to recognize basketball talent? Do you think everybody with no talent had the ability to recognize his talent? It certainly seems to me that one of the big obstacles to learning is that when you don't have the ability yourself, you struggle mightily to recognize the ability in others. If you think you recognize it, and you attempt to mimic it, but it wasn't really talent, then you're probably misguided forever, as you'll now add confidence and self-assuredness to the misguided talent. I think that's why, back in my day, guys would show up at the playground and try to emulate Magic Johnson's passes and Larry Bird's shooting. When Michael Jordan came on the scene, everybody tried to be like Mike, because they knew a bad impression of him would still make them better than most. So unless someone is head and shoulders better than everyone else, it's really difficult to know who's really talented. Basketball is just a simple example of that. So then I began to wonder, 
What is talent in chiropractic? Perhaps more disturbing to me is the fact that I can tell you what it is not, but that doesn't mean I can tell you exactly what it is. And that brings me to the third thing, which completes this trifecta. I don't know if you've heard, and if you haven't, I apologize for ruining your life, but there's now a show on TLC called Crack Addicts. That's right, Crack Addicts. To me, Crack Addicts is a derogatory term that we used to describe people who are incapable of understanding chiropractic on any intellectual level, but they're addicted to the cracking sound, and they always believe that more noise is better. It was always kind of meant to be an intellectual insult as well. And now, there's a show called Crack Addicts. And what are they doing on this show? Well, absolutely nothing special. In preparation for this episode, I subjected myself to an episode of this show because I don't believe in condemnation without investigation. Unfortunately, I only made it a few minutes in. This show was all the worst parts of chiropractic, wrapped up and forced into a single episode. It made me laugh to think that they're marketing this show like crazy just to get thousands of views, while Dr. Ian got millions of views with no such effort. So what's the difference? It's clear to me that TLC is still figuring that out. Now contrast that with Dr. Gonstead, building a huge practice in a tiny town with no social media, no TikTok videos to show off his skill, nobody seeing his awesome x-rays or any of his incredible cases. Clearly, his patients were able to recognize talent, even if it was simply because of the results. So then that got me thinking, is it possible for society as a whole to become less capable of recognizing talent? It seems the answer is yes, and it's actually a function of the Dunning-Kruger effect. As information has become more accessible, most of it useless, if not flat out wrong, it's given people a false sense of knowledge and expertise in areas where they know less than nothing and were better off before when they just knew nothing. I'm sure you've experienced it. The number of patients who would rather tell you what to do instead of telling you their symptoms? It's my hips, you just need to pull on my legs. My neck feels compressed. I just need to have you pull on my head. I've got a herniated disc, so you can't adjust that one. This is the product of the Dunning-Kruger effect, and one of its key features, according to Dunning and Kruger, is the inability to recognize genuine skill in those who possess it. So if we work this backwards, we find that the Dunning-Kruger effect opens the door for a show like Crack Addicts. The show Crack Addicts certainly diminishes what it means to be a doctor of chiropractic, as they elevated the pop and pray approach to be the epitome of what it is to be a chiropractor. This only serves to make more of the public feel like they know what chiropractic is, when in fact, they know nothing. I don't mean that insultingly, but they know nothing about the history. So they know nothing about Harvey Lillard and the fact that chiropractic isn't about back pain. They know nothing about chiropractic during the flu pandemic and how that directly led to chiropractic licensure in all 50 states. They certainly don't know biomechanics or neurology or how the two intertwine so that movement and health are related. Most of them don't even know when to use ice or heat. Nonetheless, you can give an adjustment and a patient will say, that was a good one. Well, how do they know? I'm not trying to be rude, but really, how do they? We usually judge talent based on the ability to achieve a desired result in spite of what obstacles may exist in the way. So what obstacles are in the way? And what are you able to overcome on the way to completing the adjustment? And what really to them is the purpose of the adjustment. Now let's come full circle and return to Eric Russell's original Facebook post. Why do some doctors recoil on their thoracic adjustments? Why do some doctors adjust thoracics 
with their knuckles in the air instead of flat and relaxed? Why do some doctors adjust lower thoracics with too much inferior to superior line of drive? The simple and most obvious answer is because they don't know not to. This obviously begs the question, why don't they know not to? The answer to that question ultimately comes down to who did or didn't teach them. Have you ever thought about who didn't teach you that you could have taken that could have taken you to a whole other level? I hope you don't find that thought depressing. I find it to be very motivational. I'm eager to listen to anyone who's willing to teach because you never know what you might pick up and learn. And it might not even be what the speaker was intending, but that's okay. So I have a story for you. A little more than 15 years ago, I was asked to join a group and do some singing with them. I really only knew one person in the group, and that was the bass player. I also knew that he was a phenomenal bass player. After being in the group for a little while, I recognized that we were being held back and that he probably really wanted to break out and see what he could really do. I talked to him about it, and he knew the drummer and said that we should invite him because he knew that he could do so much more. There was also a guy in the group that played acoustic guitar. He played with a certain natural ability that my friend suggested we invite him. He said, I have no idea what he can really do, but he can at least carry the tune. So we invited him. He said, sure, I'll bring my electric guitar and my amp. Oh, you have an electric guitar. Well, that sounds promising. We all get together, and everybody's setting up and warming up. He suddenly starts ripping off some Van Halen songs. Whoa, why are you playing acoustic guitar in the other group? Because that's what they asked me to do, he responded. I thought of this experience many times as I was putting this together, because I realized that even with my experience, my friend and I suspected that he was better than he let on, but we had no idea how much better. I have these questions in my mind because I really want to know how we identify talent and how we create more of it. There are a few things I've learned from Daniel Coyle's book, and I'll wrap up with these as the best way to create talent or skill for yourself. The first is the idea of grouping. There's a famous music school that has become a hotbed for talent, where they cut up the sheet music to make two note pairs. They then play these note pairs to a marching or galloping beat. It sounds nothing like the real song. They do this to make the transitions between the two notes seamless. Now you have effectively cut the number of transitions in half. You simply have to put the pairs together and you have the whole song. I've been trying to think of how to apply this in chiropractic. For one, I used to teach PRS and PLI together simply because they're both done from the same side of the table. In fact, I would teach it and quiz the students based on standing in one location and ask them, name all the listings I can adjust from this position. For beginners, this is very helpful grouping. Another way to apply this is on your setup. For everything that one hand does, pair it with the other hand. By memorizing the pairings and stringing them together, you'll rapidly accelerate the learning process. Another interesting idea comes from a Russian hotbed for producing tennis players. In fact, at one time, not only were five of the top ten female tennis players Russian, but they were all from the same school. This school never gave individual instruction, and for many of their classes, they didn't even use a ball. Their concept was that technical perfection, when it came to form and swing, 
would guarantee the results before a ball was even inserted into the equation. This tells us that poseology is not the fruitless exercise we often assume it is. The practice should be performed at a rapid pace with a lot of repetition and the focus should be on the precision of movement and not on the result. I've also come to the conclusion that students place way too much emphasis on the result, the cavitation, when the emphasis should be, according to the research, going through the motions and creating myelination by focusing on precision and accuracy of movement. It doesn't matter what you aim for, only that you can hit it with precision. My daughter has been getting involved with swimming, and she loves freestyle and backstroke. She also loves that she is told she is beautiful in the water because of her long limbs. Well, a couple of days ago, my daughter had a bad day. Actually, two bad days. It started when she accidentally made a mistake and sucked in a whole bunch of water. The next day, in an effort to avoid making the same mistake, she completely fell apart and became frustrated that, in her words, I can't even swim at all now, doing that you are not doing. We decided that she needed to rock her body side to side more, and seeing him do it gave her permission in her mind, to do it that way. The next morning, she got in the pool, and her teacher said, Whoa, you got your groove back. In fact, that's the best you've ever looked. What did you do? So she told her teacher that we watched video of Michael Phelps, and we analyzed what he was doing that she needed to do. She used the example of perfection to set her mind on what she needed to do, and finally got her mind off of what she was trying to avoid. This is the reason why you need an example of what is supposed to look like, and you can model your behavior off of it. You can dissect it down to little details. It turns out that even merely observing it will process in your brain. In Daniel Coyle's book, he tells the story of a female tennis player who had a forehand that was a dead ringer for Roger Federer. He went digging a little deeper and discovered that she and her whole family had watched every single match Federer had ever played. She had never intentionally practiced a swing like him, but the constant and focused exposure found its way into her swing nonetheless. These are important things to remember when learning to adjust or merely practicing to improve. So in the end, I had this strange congruence of Eric Russell's question, the book, The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, and the discovery of the show Crack Addicts, which probably just set me a little off kilter. There was something really strange about all of this because I felt each one pulling me in a different direction. So let me give you a closing thought. I often relate chiropractic back to athletics. One thing that's true about athletics is that every athletic event is precision elevated to the highest level. In hockey, Wayne Gretzky is famous for his precision. In swimming, Michael Phelps is known for his precision. Excellence in sports is the result of greater precision. So in chiropractic, if we want to know how to excel and reach the highest level, it's going to be the inevitable result of greater precision. That means that no matter what your current level of ability is, you can move forward to the next level by working toward greater precision. It turns out, in Daniel Coyle's book, he talks about the great John Wooden and how he was chosen by ESPN as the greatest coach of all times in any sport. Daniel Coyle talks about how his practices were probably not what you would expect from someone with his reputation. His instructions were simply short, quick bursts of information that focused entirely on what he wanted and not what he didn't want. That's what we're looking for. Put more snap into it. Push more with your left foot. That's it. These kinds of comments create skills creation when they're accompanied by a high volume of repetition. It should also be noted that John Wooden began every season by teaching his players how to put on their socks and shoes because he didn't want them getting blisters 
and negatively affecting their performance. It turns out again that this level of discipline, structure, and attention to detail is absolutely essential for the creation of high-level skills. Laid-back, unstructured environments might be fun and enjoyable, but they do not create high-level skills. Presumably, it's because it's only when we are highly focused on every detail that we can perceive the effect that those details have on our performance and their result. When I taught adjusting labs, I would often explain something I thought was profound, but I knew it was probably over most of the students' heads, and that caused them to wonder what kind of crazy system I was introducing. I would start with incredible detail, like where they should place their feet every single time. They would wonder what their feet have to do with a good adjustment. Then they would line their body up with the patient, take a tissue slack, make a contact, position their adjusting elbow. It was a whole process with details they would reproduce over and over. But once they made their contact with the adjusting hand, all of that stuff was now irrelevant and the only thing that mattered in the whole world was the vertebra they were attempting to move. It seemed confusing to them that you focus on all this detail and then you ignore it in an instant. I told them it's only because of that detail that you're able to ignore it and focus on the bone. Deep focus on the details is an essential ingredient for creating high-level skills. I tell you these things because I would like for you to have a game plan for developing your own high-level skills. But I also want you to have a game plan for recognizing high-level skills in others and not being easily impressed as so many students often are. I wish the public wasn't so easily impressed by chiropractors who make a lot of noise and put on a show but fail to get the results we all know chiropractic is capable of. I wish students weren't so easily impressed either. I wish we all had a better understanding of what creates talent so we could create it in ourselves and recognize it in others. This was all something that I just thought about for a while, and I sat in the mystery and confusion of why we struggle to become the doctors we want to be, but often feel that we're not. The final truth of this is that you can't get there by comparing yourself to the ideal doctor you want to be or comparing yourself to anyone else. You can only get there by comparing yourself to who you were yesterday. That's the challenge and the secret. I hope you found this episode helpful. To end this week's episode, I have something special for you. Earlier I told you about my friend John, the guitar player. If you weren't already wondering how I was unclear on how much talent he had, then you're going to be really wondering after this. I'm going to close out this episode with an original song from him, but let me set this up first. He and I were deeply involved in recording. He would lay down basic tracks, I would then write lyrics and a melody, I'd record it, and then he'd go back and he'd lay down final tracks to finish it off. We had followed this routine for several songs. The song you're about to hear is one where he laid down the basic tracks. I wrote some lyrics and melody lines, but then I got laryngitis before we could record, and I completely lost my voice for weeks. When I finally got it back, we sat down to record. He said, before we record anything, I want to show you what I did while I was bored and waiting. He then played me the track you're about to hear. I told him it was perfect the way it is, and I never even showed him what I had come up with. We named our songs with numbers until the vocals were done, and then we'd rename them with words. This song, to this day, is still referred to as song number six. I hope you enjoy it. And as always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Mm -hmm.